And then let's go ahead and pray. We'll dig into the word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We love you. You are a great and awesome God. And what a privilege it is to gather together in your name to worship you. And Lord, we ask now as we go to your word that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to each and every one of us. Lord, I thank you for everyone who's here. Whatever they might be going through in life right now, whatever trial they may be going through or need of wisdom, whatever it is, Lord, may you minister to every heart. May you draw us closer unto yourself. I pray if anybody's new tonight, they would feel welcomed and loved. We pray for those watching via live stream, those that will hear this later on Vimeo or YouTube or on the radio. And Lord, may your word go forth with power. May lives be changed. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So as we know, going through Chronicles, this is a letter to the church that had been in captivity for 70 years in Babylon, and now they're going back to Jerusalem, and most of them have never been there. So as they're going back to Jerusalem, this was a history lesson written by the chronicler so they would understand what had happened before. Most of First Chronicles deals with King David. He's really the central focus of First Chronicles. And so we saw a couple weeks ago in chapter 13 that David was now king. He's been anointed king. And one of the things he wanted to do, which was a wonderful thing, was bring the ark back to Jerusalem. Because the ark had been, uh, remember, had been taken captive by the Philistines when they went out, when the children of Israel went out into battle and they used it. Like, uh, you know, they thought it would make them win the battle instead of honoring the Lord. And then it was taken captive, and the Philistines got it, and their God fell over and died in front of it. So they sent, sent it back on a cart, and it had been housed in a small town for, great, for many years. And so David's desire was to bring it back. And if you were here two weeks ago, you remember that they were bringing it back. They wanted to do the right thing, but they did it the wrong way. And you remember they put it on a cart. And again, it might seem logical if you don't read your Bible, And they had not understood what the Word of God says, because there was a very clear command that the Levites were to carry it on their shoulders using poles, where literally nobody actually touched the ark. They would carry it. And that picture of, you know, carrying the ark is a picture of what God does in us. He uses us to bring the Word of God to others, to bring the Holy Spirit. When you show up at work tomorrow, the Holy Spirit just entered the building. So now, as we come to chapter 15, last week we saw... David being established and his house being built and some of the things that he went through, battling the Philistines, all the different trials. But now he's going to try to bring the ark back again. But this time he's learned a lesson. And I want to say this, no suffering is wasted. And I will also say that no discipline from God is wasted. That the Lord, those who the Lord loves, he disciplines. And when he disciplines us, it's an opportunity for us to grow spiritually. And that's exactly what's happened with King David. Because if you remember when they brought it back on the cart, it started to fall. Uzzah reached out and touched it. He was struck down dead. Then they had a lot of hard time getting any volunteers that wanted to help with the ark after that. And it was sent back to someone's home where it's been sitting there for three months. So three months have gone by. David now has spent some time in the Word. We're going to see it in the text tonight. And he has taken time to understand, you know, why did that happen before? What did we do wrong? How do we do this right this time. Boy, what an example for us, because we can all make those mistakes, sometimes out of ignorance. I won't even call it a mistake. That's weak. We sin. Amen? And sometimes it can be out of ignorance. If you're a new believer and you don't really know the word, 
And then all of a sudden you read the Bible and realize, oh, the Bible says I'm not supposed to be doing that. I think I told you guys this. I was doing pre-marriage counseling for a guy who was one of my customers in Santa Cruz, and he ended up coming to our church, and he ended up getting saved. And then I'm doing pre-marriage counseling for him and his wife. And during our pre-marriage counseling, he said, so Pastor Davis, it sounds like to me what you're telling me is I have to get rid of all my porn. Uh, yeah. Amen. I'm like, wow. And we just don't recognize how far away some people can be from the word of God if they've never read it. Amen. And so out of ignorance, sometimes we can do things and not realize that that's not what God's highest is. And sometimes out of ignorance, when we're supposed to, you know, how do they know how to transport the ark if they didn't read the word? The future consequences are an opportunity to grow and experience as the best teacher. But sometimes it's just out of rebellion. I think that's most of the time where we know what the word of God says and we choose to do the, other, do the opposite anyway. We know what the Bible says and we decide we're going to do it anyway. And that's exactly what can happen in our lives as well. And then we see the consequences of sin. So David's previous attempt, it was humbling. Remember, if you were not paying, you know, if you don't remember, there were 30,000 people in a parade to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. And they were playing worship and they had a big, they were celebrating and there's their new king in charge and they're so excited. And then somebody touches the ark and they die. And they died because David did not know what the word said, and the Levites didn't do it the right way. And you know what? If you really mess up, I'm thinking 30,000 witnesses is probably not the ideal situation. If I'm going to blow it, I want like nobody around or, or maybe just my wife who knows me, right? But 30,000 people saw this failure. So now David's going to do it again, and he's going to bring a crowd even larger than the last one, but he's going to do it having spent time in the word of the Lord. It said in 1 Chronicles, and I want, I want to make a point of this before we get into the text. It says, then the anger of the Lord, back in chapter 13, verse 10, was aroused against Uzzah, and he struck him because he put his hand on the ark, and he died before God. God was angry because he disobeyed God, and it was a picture of him touching God's glory. It was a place that only the high priest, only on the Day of Atonement would go into. It's a picture of not only the cross of Calvary, but the resurrection in many ways with the angels, right? And he was not to touch that. Do you know that God gets angry at sin? If you don't hear anything else I say tonight from the text, I want you to know that God hates sin. Amen? And sometimes as believers, we, we have experienced God's grace and praise God for it. But we experience it to the point that we can start taking our sin lightly. We can start looking at something and saying, well, that's not that big a deal. And, you know, that's not, you know, one of the seven deadly sins. They're all deadly sins. And so he says he was angry. Guys, I don't want to make God angry. Amen? I want to live my life in such a way that it brings joy to my Savior's heart. Amen? And so he was angered. Sin and rebellion against God's command resulted in God's anger toward the one who acted contrary to God's word. And again, God hates sin. Why does God hate sin? You know why? Because it separates us from him. He hates sin because the one of the consequences of sin is death. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus, even though he knew he was about to raise him from the dead, because he knew the consequence of sin was separation from him and that people would know death. He hates sin too because it's rebellion. He hates it because the high price his son would have to pay to redeem us. So if you have your outline, grab it. And I 
titled the message, The Blessings of Divine Discipline. So when we are disciplined by God, just like when we discipline our kids, we discipline them because we love them and we're willing to have them experience short-term temporary pain to keep them from long-term, much greater pain. Amen? So a swat to the rear end, if it will keep me from my kids from running in the street, that's a good trade-off. Amen? So the same is true for us. When God disciplines us, there's blessings. First of all, learning to make the Lord the priority above all else. One of the things, the Bible, one of the first, the first two commandments are have no other gods before me and no graven image. And one of the things we can struggle with, as, again, as Christians, if we're not careful, we will make other things more important than God. And we won't, I don't think we'll necessarily say that out loud, but the Bible says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we can often tell what our priority is by where we spend our time and our talents and our, 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 our money, whatever, all the riches we have, wherever we invest those things, that's really the priority of our life. And sadly, too many of us, uh, our career can become, now, should we be the best workers in the building? What's the answer? Every believer, we should be on time, work hard, do your job as unto the Lord, honor God, be honest, do everything to the best of your ability. But again, we don't want to make our career more important than God. And we don't want to make stuff more important than God or our hobbies more important than God or even our children more important than God. Now, of course, we should love our children and we do. But the best thing I can do for my kids is love God more than I love them. The best thing I can do for my wife is love God more than I love her. Amen? And so the first thing we're going to see is learning to make the Lord the priority above all else. Set your mind on things above. Secondly, faithfully using the gifts God has given us. First, be content with the, God's, the gifts God's given you. We're going to see in tonight's text that while we all have gifts, whatever gifts we have, we're probably not the best person at it in the world, Right? And so sometimes we fall into the trap of comparing ourselves to other people. God knows what gift he gave you and how gifted you are. And you just be faithful to use the gift he has given you for his glory. Amen? You know, too often early on, Pastor Chuck used to tell the story that when he went to seminary, everybody wanted to be Billy Graham. Everybody. They all wanted to be Billy Graham. And he said when he was first pastoring a church as a young man, he would use all the same hand motions and stuff as Billy Graham because that's what Billy Graham did. And he said, at one time, I, I reached my hand back and threw my hand out there with a great expression and forgot what in the world was I going to say. And he realized, you know what? God doesn't need two Billy Grahams. He just needs one of me and one of him. Amen? So the gifts that God has given you, use them for his glory don't compare yourself to someone else who's more gifted because all of us know somebody more gifted than us. Amen. And you know what? Just be faithful to the gift he's given you. Number three, holiness for me, grace for everyone else. Here's a calling in, in the, tonight's chapter just to live a holy and a set apart life, to honor the Lord above all else, to sanctify yourselves, to set yourself apart. And one of the things I really love is, is this picture in tonight's text that holiness and obedience draws the Lord closer to you. See, if sin separates, living a sanctified life draws us closer to him. Amen? Be holy for he is holy. Number four, there's joy in the house of the Lord. Amen? And we're going to see that worship should be joyful. Amen. When we get to heaven, I promise you, it is not going to be modeling and mourning. Amen? I've been to some churches where you would think everybody is dying. 
There's just no joy. None of that's happening in heaven. I'm just telling you right now. I, now, look, I'm an older guy. Have you ever heard that song by Phillips, Craig, and Dean? It's called uh, the, the uh, Concert of the Age. And it talks about when Jesus, when we're all around the throne, and then all of a sudden the Lord comes out, and he talks about the roar that just goes over the crowd as everyone is shouting. And boy, I envision that in my mind sometimes. We're going to be in, in a crowd with millions, probably billions of people, and the Lord's going to come forth. Can you imagine how loud that's going to be? Amen. We're going to be shouting it out. There's joy in the house of the Lord, and there should be joy in our worship. Amen? Number five, when God calls you, he equips you. And again, the eyes of the Lord search to and fro among the whole earth, seeking one. He can show himself strong and account him, one whose heart is loyal to him. He's looking for men and women to be used for his kingdom. And then finally, we worship to an audience of one. We're going to see David worshiping, and his wife is going to be ashamed of him. She's going to see him worshiping, and she's going to go, dude, what's wrong with him? And she's ashamed of him. She, she's taken back by his, his worship. Don't worry. Now, first of all, when we worship, here's, here's the only two rules we have at this church. Worship any way you want. Just make sure you don't take people's eyes off of the Lord and get them on you. Amen? In Santa Cruz, we had a lady that loved to just run around and, I mean, you know, with flags and run around. And I'm like, we love you and you can do that in the back. Because we don't want to keep you from worshiping the Lord, but when you're doing that, nobody's worshiping. They're all watching this lady run up and down with a flag. We don't need that. But at the same time, I don't, hey, if you want to jump up and down for Jesus, I'm good with that. Amen? But let's just make sure we keep the focus on him and not on ourselves. So, blessings of divine discipline that's begin there in verse 1. Second time around, trying to bring that ark. Last time somebody died. We didn't do it the Lord's way. And again, praise the Lord that God is a God of second chances. Look at verse 1. David built houses for himself in the city of David. If you were here for chapter 14, remember that Hiram the, of, the, of Tyre, Tyre, the king of Tyre, he brought all the materials and then he brought uh, craftsmen to build David a magnificent house. And then it says here in this verse that David built houses for himself. Do you have any idea why he might need houses? Too many what? There you go. If you're a polygamist, you got to have a five mortgages, right? And, but what happened was we saw that last week while David was a mighty man of God, like many men in the Bible, he was a, a godly man who had a, a weakness for the women. And that's the number one reason that people in ministry fall from the beginning of time till today is, is women. Because these men cannot keep their focus on, their, on the Lord and on their wives. Amen? And that's tragic. And here's King David. So he had multiple houses he had built for himself. Uh, the one that was built by the king, uh, King Hiram of Tyre. And he, no, no doubt it was magnificent. And then he had other houses because he had multiple wives and many children. But guess what? Guess who didn't have a house? The Lord. And we know that it's going to be in David's heart to build a house for the Lord. And we're going to see this time something different happens that didn't happen last time. Look at the rest of verse 1. And he prepared a place for the ark of God and pinched a tent for it. Now, some of us, if you were to look at the way we invest, you would think that we invest palaces for me, tents for Jesus. Amen? And I'm talking about our time, our efforts, 
our gifting. We give God what's left over. I remember we used to do, uh, you know, you'd have things where you bring donations for the missionaries. And it was pitiful to see what people would bring for missionaries sometimes. They would get the old shoes out of the back of the closet that they used for eight years and, and, and bring it. I saw one time there was one shoe in there. And they bring the stuff that's broken and they go buy themselves new stuff. And I thought, you know what? We got to buy the missionaries new stuff and put some new laces in that old shoe and put it back on my foot. Amen. The point is that we can lose sight on what really the priority is. It's not about our comfort. It's about his glory. Amen. And so he says here, but at least he had a, a tent. He didn't have a tent in chapter 13 when he was doing this. He had nowhere to put it. Where's he going to put the ark in his living room? Where's he going to put it? We don't even have a place for it. See, he wanted the ark, but he had not sought the Lord, and he was not prepared for the ark to be brought. And sometimes, too, for us, we say we want God to use us, but we spend no time preparing to be used by God. We spend no time in, the, in prayer. We spend no time in the word. We spend no time uh, praying about what is my calling and what is my gifting and Lord, how do you want to use me? And so, you know, I've heard the saying that he that aims at nothing hits it every time. Amen? If there's no goal, if there's nothing that you're called to do, if you don't have a passion for anything, you'll do nothing. You'll be on the cruise ship to heaven until we get there, sitting back. So David hadn't done it the first time, but this time... David is preparing for the ark. David built his own house with excellence and first time, no real thought or preparation from the Lord, but now he has. We can all get so caught up on our own needs and our own desires and our own wants that the Lord becomes secondary. I imagine when we get to heaven, and I don't know, we don't, and we have ideas of how it will work in heaven, but we do know that God will reward us for how faithful we were with the gifts he gave us. And I have an idea that the people at the front of the line in heaven getting more rewards than others are not going to be the people we think. It may be that lady, that, that, that the widow with her two mites, who gave what little she had and was a prayer warrior, and nobody ever saw it. But the Lord did. Amen? And God, God desires that we just surrender our lives to him. He knows whether you have 10 talents or five talents or two talents or one talent. And if you're faithful with one talent, it's far better than being lazy with 10. Amen? And you be faithful. God's anger responds to the lack of reverence and outright rebellion that David and the priests exhibited in their first move of the ark produced a more intentional and reverent handling of the ark this time around. The Levites were carrying it. They should have known how to carry it. They should have known. They were taught. But now they've been in Babylon in captivity for 70 years. And the, the worship has the ones, these are the people that are going to be coming back later. So these people here from King David's time should have known. Again, it had been taken by the Philistines. They take their eyes off of God. And this is what happens when you cease to be in fellowship. It's not long before you get further and further away. I was witnessing to an old friend of mine on the phone the other day. And I said, and he used to go to church all the time. And I said, so how are you doing at church? Well, you know, I... I, you know, I got remarried and, you know, she wasn't really a church person. I'm like, bonk, bonk, bonk. you know, and, you know, I haven't really gone to church. I'm like, why? Well, you know, I just got out of the habit. Well, I hope the Lord doesn't get out of the habit of saving you on judgment day. How about that? He's like, bro. I'm like, bro, I'm worried. You know, what, what, are you going to heaven? 
uh, well, I, you know, uh, I, well, how sure are you? I'm like 90% sure. I don't want 10% chance of hell. How about you? Amen. But the point I'm making is it's so easy for us to lose sight of the Lord and get out of, if you stop spending time in prayer before you know it, you'll have no prayer life. If you don't open up the Bible and have devotions in the morning, you can look up one day and you can't remember where your Bible is. If you have to go find your Bible before church, you're not reading it enough. Amen? You're blowing layers of dust off it every Sunday. So what's happening is they've lost sight of the Word of God. They lost sight of the priorities of God. The Levites had lost sight because there had been so many years in captivity and not being faithful to use their gifts. We too need to take whatever time and effort is necessary to search God's word and to seek godly counsel. Here's what's going to happen this time. Someone's going to open up the Bible, and they're going to read it and go, oh, polls. There it is. I, for, I didn't know. Where are the polls? What are the, okay, we need that. Don't do that again. And they waited to hear from the Lord. They sought godly counsel, and we need to do the same. Here's what we do instead. Too often, we move forward in ignorance or outright rebellion with little or no thought of God's will, what God's word says, seek no godly counsel, then it crashes and burns all over the highway, and then we blame God. I don't understand why God let this happen to me. You've been walking in complete disobedience to you because he loves you, he allows you to fall. One of the prayers I pray often for people when they've got someone who's away from the Lord, Lord, do whatever's necessary to get their attention. Jail works sometimes. Amen? Losing everything works sometimes. Everything falling apart. Whatever it takes to get us to run back to the Lord, it's worth it. The prodigal son ended up in the pig slop. Amen? And praise God for pig slop because it made him want to go home. The same is true for us. So thankful for God's grace, we must not, must not take sin and rebellion lightly. And again, grace is freedom from sin, it's not freedom to sin. So the tent David prepared, by the way, it's not the whole tabernacle. The tabernacle is all going to remain in Gibeon. And the only thing that they took was the ark, and he puts up a smaller tent for just the ark. And he wants the presence of God to be back in Jerusalem. David, we know, has a heart to build a temple worthy of the Lord. We're going to see it later on that he's going to look around his house and say, how can I live in this mansion and my, the presence of my Savior's in a pup tent? How in the world is this, am I letting this happen? And he wanted to build, he wanted so desperately to build a temple for the Lord. But again, because of his own disobedience, that's not going to happen. But at least he has sought the Lord now. He wants to do things the right way. And the tent was prepared. So remaining in Gibeon, they will still be making sacrifices in Gibeon. They're going to still have the, the, four other, the five other furnishings, the bronze altar, the bronze laver, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, and the uh, golden lampstand. Those will all remain. They will continue to do uh, all the other uh, sacrifices there, but the ark is going to be in Jerusalem. Eventually, it will all be brought to Jerusalem, but not right away. So David's tent housed only the ark. It represented God's presence. There's no clear explanation for why David didn't move the tabernacle, but I truly believe he didn't want to give God just a tent in Jerusalem. He wanted to be faithful to begin to build him a temple. Then it says in verse 2, 
Then David said, no one may carry the ark of God but the Levites. Okay, somebody read the Bible. Somebody opened up the, the Septuagint, and they started reading in Leviticus, and they started reading in Numbers, and they recognized, oh, that's how the ark is supposed to be cared for. And isn't it amazing when we open up our Bible, all of a sudden, God gives us direction. Amen? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by... Word of God. And, and it's amazing how we can, it's so hard sometimes to open your Bible. You'll get distracted. You'll do anything but open your Bible. And I want to encourage you, uh, man, the Bible rocks. Amen. And when you open it, it's always worth it. One of the things I've been doing for the last year and a half or so, um, I don't like to go to sleep with quiet. I like some, so what I do is I think called Bible IS. It's a free app. And I just put a book of the Bible on, and I hit it, and it just reads it to me. So while I'm falling asleep, I just hear the Word of God. And I'll do the same book of the Bible for a month. And I'll usually hear the first six or seven chapters, and I'm out. You know what I mean? But it's good to fall asleep. To Even the thing that I'm, I'm, I'm laying in bed, it's the Word of God. It's not Seinfeld or whatever, right? It's not TikTok. Or, you know, it's the Word of God. And the Word of God is being poured into us. He says, now, don't carry the ark. Thou shalt not. It says in Deuteronomy 10.8, at the time the Lord separated the tribe of Levi to bear the ark of the covenant, to stand before the Lord to minister unto him, and to bless his name unto this day. So there he read that verse. Oh, it's the Levites only. Okay, only Levites can do it. Everybody else, get out of the way. Don't touch it. Don't go near it. Let the Levites be the one. You want to live an obedient life to the Lord? You want to enjoy his blessing? Read God's word, study God's word, obey God's word. Amen? Open it, read it, obey it. It's not good enough to know that the speed limit's 55 if you're driving 90. Amen? We need to know what the word of God tells us and know again, as I said it a hundred times, one more time, he's not trying to keep you from fun. He wants to keep you from harm. He wrote it down so you can have life and life more abundant and you can live a joyful life. Have the joy of the Lord. Then it says there in the rest of verse 2, it says, For the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark and to minister before him forever. Do you remember why the Levites were chosen? How come? Who remembers? What happened? The Levites, remember, when he, when he, he called all the believers to come, Moses did, come to me. And there was one tribe where they all went. Who was it? Levites. And because of that, God had a special calling and blessing. When no one else would come, they came. Other tribes had people that came, but all the Levites came. You know what? They lost their inheritance. They had no inheritance in the land. You know why? Because they were called not to be tied down to the land, but to minister to people. Amen? And praise God for the Levites. So point number two, point number one, learning to make the Lord the priority above all else. Again, above that, the big palace I'm making, above everything else, I'm going to get into God's word, and then whatever God's word tells me to do, I'm going to do that. Make him the priority. Number two, faithfully using the gifts God has given us. Now watch this. Verse three. And David gathered all Israel together at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. So now this time, he's prepared a place for the ark. And now he gathers all of Jerusalem Last time he did it, off the cuff. 
He didn't open up the word. He didn't know what it said. He did. He just throw it on the cart. We'll just get it here. 30,000 people singing songs and all of a sudden Uzzah drops dead. This time he has spent time in the word. He has read what the, what the word of God says about how to transport it and, and how it's to be carried. We'll see in a moment and, and how all these people are going to be used for, for his glory in the midst of it. So he's actually going to draw an even bigger crowd and trust that this time God's going to bring about his will, that God's going to do something amazing. A major problem for many readers as we're going to go through this are seeing a list of names, but again, it's a clear reflection of God's word had to be read and is being obeyed. So it says there, he gathered them all, bring up the land of place, which he had prepared for. Then David assembled the children of Aaron and the Levites. So Aaron was the high priest. And while all the Levites were Levites, they weren't all, while all priests were Levites, not all Levites were priests. So all the Levites had a calling. If you guys were here and we were going through Numbers and Deuteronomy, we saw each tribe, like a certain tribe, when the tabernacle was moved, there was one tribe that all they did was move the furniture. They worked for U-Haul, right? I mean, they moved the furniture. Then you had another tribe that did, all they did was take all the linens. And then another tribe that took all the, all the things that, would, that put the ark together. And what would happen is when the ark would move, when the glory of God would move, they would follow it. And when they would follow it, they would they wake up in the morning. Remember the pillar of fire, by, a pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud? When the pillar moved, they wake up in the morning. It's not over the tabernacle anymore. There it is. And they would gather everything up and move to where they got to where the Lord's presence was and rebuild it. But everybody knew what they were called to do. And because everybody was faithful, they moved for 40 years throughout the wilderness. And remember, the tabernacle was in the shape of a cross. It was in the shape of a cross. So as the Lord, as Almighty God looked down from heaven, what did he see? He saw the cross, his presence was upon the tabernacle in the center portion of it. And he saw them moving in a cross throughout the land of the wilderness. The Bible rocks, by the way. Amen. So the first attempt, 30,000 people escorted and we saw the disaster. This time, we're going to see that he's making preparation. So he gets to Aaron, so the priests and the Levites, and the sons of Kohath, Uriel the chief, and 120 of his brethren. So Kohath, the Kohathites, were part of the Levites. They had a specific calling in what they were to do in the moving of the tabernacle, and also they're going to be used here, specifically using their gifts. Then it says, then the sons of Merari, Asiah, the chief, and 220 of his brethren. The sons of Gershom, Joel, the chief, and 130 of his brethren. The sons of Eliphaz, uh, um, Shemaiah, the chief, and 200 of his brethren. The sons of Hebron, Eliel, the chief, and 80 of his brethren. And the sons of Uzael, Aminadab, the chief, and 112 of his brethren. Now, the first thing I want you to see here is that our God is a God of order and that our God will take and give individual gifts so that when everybody is faithful to use it, that everything will function well and be prosperous and profitable. You know why church, so, many church, so many churches struggle? Because sometimes what you'll have is a small handful of people serving and everybody else is just a consumer. I'm not saying that's happening here, but it does happen a lot in churches. I heard it, if you heard me say this, I've heard it described as a church is like a college football game. You know, 80,000 people watching and 22 people down the middle beating each other to death, right? I mean, what happens is you're just, there's so, sadly, it's sad that so many people are willing to just sit on the sidelines 
Never shared their faith in their lifetime. I'll talk to people about the Lord. Yeah, my walk's not that strong. Have you ever shared your faith? Never. Have you ever read through the Bible? No. How's your prayer life? Don't really have one. Uh, you know, the girl, the girl you're dating, oh, she's not saved. Well, no wonder. And I'm telling you, why do we announce gifts? Why does Pastor Joshua announce gifts every time, or Doug, whoever's doing announcements? Not because we just want more stuff to be done, but because we want you to be able to use your gifts so you will be blessed and you will grow spiritually. Amen? It's amazing how those who are using their gifts the most grow the most. And again, we don't use them so we'll be recognized. We use them so that God will be glorified. Each faithfully using God's gifting to bring about God's will. Each family of the Levites had a specific calling from the Lord. Again, the cloud moved, they moved. They all sprung into action, faithfully using their gifts to bring about God's will. So point number two there. Faithfully using the gifts God has given us. Be content with whatever your gift is. Uh, if you don't know what your gifts are, dig a well, which I mean, go, go try something. If, if it doesn't work out, that's okay. It's better to, well, you know what? I'll help out in children's ministry. You find out, you know, I'm just not really called to do that. Then you help with something else. Well, you know, I'm not really called to do that. And then you help try some. And I want to say this too. A burden is a spotting ground of a calling. When you have a burden for something, that's God moving on your heart to be faithful to it. I was a youth pastor for 15 years and I love teenagers to this day. And I love teenagers because they're at a fork in the road. It's such an important time in their life. And you know, when I had a burden for teenagers, I would, I would drive on Friday night sometimes after my wife and my kids were in bed, I'd go down to the mall or I'd go over to the movie theater where hundreds of teenagers are just milling around. And I would just go up and start talking to them. Why? Because I had a burden for them. Amen. And I want to encourage you, if you have a burden for something, a burden is a spawning ground of a calling. Number three, holiness for me, grace for everyone else. Look at verse 11. And David called for Zadok, Abiathar, and Abiathar the priest, and for the Levites, for Uriel, Asiah, Joel, Shemei, Eliel, and Minadab. So those are all the leaders and the chiefs amongst each tribe. And then he calls for Zadok and Abiathar, who are the priests. So these guys serve, they're the one. Now, what does a priest do? A priest has a twofold ministry. Here's what it is. He intercedes with God for the people and he ministers to the people for God. Amen? So a priest is like an intermediary. He comes to the Lord inter interceding on behalf of the people that he's called to minister to. And then he comes to the people and encourages them and tells them about the Lord. What the Lord has taught him, he teaches them. So he disciples people and he comes humbly before God. And that's what a pastor does. And we, now, now, we don't have high priests anymore because we have a great high priest. And who's that? And where is he right now? So what is he doing? He intercedes with the Father on our behalf, but he also ministers to us. Amen? And so that's what these priests did. That was their calling, was to come before the Lord and bring sacrifices on behalf of the people. Here's the shed blood, and they would bring that. But then they would also go and they would minister to the people. And that's what these priests were called to do. So he calls for the priests, and while all priests were Levites, not all Levites were priests. Verse 12. And he said to them, you are the heads of the fathers, houses of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place I have prepared for it. So not only does he know that only the Levites can bring the ark, 
But somebody who brings the ark needs to be living a holy life. He says, sanctify yourselves. That means cleanse yourselves. Now, we know from other texts and from other writings that literally what this meant is like when, when, when a scribe, one of the Levites, a scribe would write the name God. He would write one letter of God and then he would go cleanse himself and go through an entire ritual and bathe himself and put on clean clothes and then come back and write the second letter and then go do it again. You know why? Because they had a reverence for the name of God. And by the way, boy, do we need a reverence for God's name today. It's used more as a curse word than exalted in worship. Amen? So he tells them to sanctify themselves. We've talked about this for believers. We know that the, the day you give your life to the Lord, you're justified, just as if you've never sinned. Then you're being sanctified till the day you're glorified. So what are we doing as Christians? We should always be getting molded more and more to the image of our Savior. Amen? But he's telling them that you need to sanctify yourself, set yourself apart, surrender your life to the Lord, draw closer unto him, be cleansed so that you can be used by the Lord. The word here, again, means ceremonially and morally set aside for the worship of God, kept separate from the world's defilement, a possession of the Lord. So sanctification and in this case, ceremonially, they couldn't touch anything that was dead. They couldn't have contacts with corpses. They couldn't have dirty clothes. Uh, boy, no teenagers would be priests then, would they? Couldn't have dirty clothes. Um, they couldn't marry, they couldn't marry uh, someone who had been divorced. They couldn't be with a prostitute or even a widow. I mean, there were all these things that they had to do. They were set apart unto the Lord to be able to serve him in that way. It says in 1 Peter 3, 16, uh, chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, Wherefore, gird up your loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for grace that is brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust of your ignorance, but as he which hath called you to be holy, so you be holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy for I am holy. We too are to be holy because our Father is holy. Amen? Now again, are we ever going to achieve sinless perfection on this planet? What's the answer? The answer is absolutely not. And there are people that teach that. I met a guy not long ago. Well, it's probably been a couple years now when you get old, you know. But uh, he told me he, he hadn't sinned in years. Oh, I haven't sinned in years. I haven't sinned in years. I go, you just sin right now because you're prideful. And you just told a lie. <laughs> Amen? Now, that being said, because we will never achieve sinless perfection, it should not be an excuse then not to try to live a holy life. Amen? Now, we don't live a holy life because we try harder. We live a holy life because we surrender more. Amen? It's when we say, Lord, I need your help. I'm desperate for you. I shared this with you guys. And it's just, it's something that weighs on me all the time. My son, Mark, and I would have this discussion all the time. Mark had been dealing with depression since he was 13. So for 15 years, we had this, we had this discussion 50 times that we had it once. Dad, why won't God take the depression away? He would be, my six foot five, 250 pound son would be in his room crying, tears down his face. Why won't God take it away? And I, I would have to say, son, because depression doesn't come from the Lord, it comes from the enemy. The prayer needs to be, Lord, Help me in my depression to run to you. 
Because you know what the enemy wants you to do? So whatever your temptation is, whatever your struggle is, there's a choice to be made. You can run to something else to, to overcome that pain or that struggle or that temptation. And there's things that the enemy will offer. And when he offers it to you, he'll say to you, well, if you do this, it'll take away the pain for a while. If you do this, you'll, you'll, it'll satisfy your flesh for a while. And what the enemy wants to do is kill you. He wants to destroy you. So he will draw you away with things that will bring destruction to your walk with the Lord, that will harm your testimony, that will separate you from God. The Lord, on the other hand, is right there. He loves you. So we can run to the Lord or we can run to worldly answers. Amen? And that's the exhortation. The calling here is to live a sanctified life, which means when I am tempted to run to the Lord. Now, we don't always do it, but, you know, as believers, we should be, again, not sinless, but we should sin less. Amen? And we should view our sin as not something that we want to appease, but something that we hate. Amen? Love God, hate sin. That's good theology right there. Love God, hate sin. And so the exhortation here is he's telling these guys to live sanctified lives. Sanctify yourselves. The Levites were to be sanctified before they served. Holiness and obedience welcomes the Lord in to rejoice with us, to walk in intimate fellowship with us. And again, holiness for me, grace for everyone else. And what I want to say is that another mistake that gets made is you have legalism where everybody thinks it's their job to point out everyone else's sin. And that's never what the Lord wants you to do. Amen? You know what? I need to focus on my walk. And I want holiness for me. And I want to live a sanctified life. And I want to honor the Lord with everything I think and say and do. I want to honor the Lord in my workplace. I want to honor the Lord in my marriage. I want to honor the Lord with my children. I want to honor my Lord and honor the Lord in serving you guys. And I want to honor him in every area. But at the same time, when I look at others, I don't want to have that same standard for them because that's between them and the Lord. What I want to have for everyone else is grace. I don't know what you're going through and I love you. And how can I help you? And how can I minister to you? Amen. So holiness for me, grace for everyone else. He says, you need to sanctify yourselves because when you're sanctified, you're usable for the kingdom of God. God will use you in mighty and powerful ways. So do exceedingly abundantly above all you could ask or even think. For because you did not do it the first time, back in 1 Chronicles, he says, the Lord God broke out against us because we did not consult him after the proper order. See, the previous time they had not sought the Lord. They did not ask for God's wisdom. Again, he says, there, sanctify yourselves that you may bring up the ark of the Lord to Israel to the place I have prepared for it. Verse 13, for because you did not do it the first time, as I just quoted, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not consult him about the proper order. Our God is a God of order, so we don't seek the Lord's direction and wisdom. We fly off the cuff and do things our own way. Then we wonder why it all blows up in our face. And then we go back and the Lord's saying, because you didn't do it my way. Now, again, I don't want to pick on any particular thing because there's, we're all sinners and every sin separates. Amen? But here's an easy example. You're dating an unbeliever. You're dating an unbeliever. Well, he's handsome or she's this, she's pretty or this, or he's got a car, he's got a great job, or I'm lonely. And so what do you do? You compromise and you get into a relationship with somebody who doesn't know the Lord. 
And now you have this relationship where, you, where your relationship with the Lord is impacted because you, you cannot be in equally yoked together. You cannot hold fire to your bosom and not be burned. So you walk in that relationship for a while and then the whole thing blows up. Now the, the good news would be hopefully that you recognize, you know what? That wasn't a godly relationship. I dishonored the Lord. I went my own way and God taught me why I shouldn't do that because that was a mess. But you know what happens? People will do that 57 times. They will just keep bringing it. I know people, I love people that I love unconditionally that I'm like, so you got a new boy, tell me about them. And then as soon as they put their head down, I already know, game over. And if you have to prop somebody up, well, let me tell you about this gal I'm dating. And you have to prop her up and say, you should just be able to let her walk into the room with Christians and everybody talk to her and they'll all know where she's at. Amen? But we, and it, it, that's just one example. We, there's thousands of examples where we will compromise. And God loves us enough to discipline us to say, I don't, I have better for you. I have better for you. It's so sad that it's so infrequent. But I was just talking to a pastor friend of mine. His son just got married and he and his girlfriend had never, his fiance had never kissed till they said, you may kiss the bride. And the same thing happened with my daughter. And I just love that. And you know what? God honors that. Amen. And so he says, sanctify yourself, separate yourself from the world so you can be usable for the kingdom of God. Holiness for me, grace for everyone else. He said, let's be about the proper order. See, last time we did it the wrong way, Uzziah died. The cart fell over. The ark never made it to Jerusalem. This time we're not going to do it that way. This time we're going to honor the Lord. And the only way we can honor him is to read his word. Amen? That's a lesson for all of us. Our God is a God of order. Let me give you some examples of how God's a God of order. I think this is significant. We need to listen to this just for a few minutes here. In the church, we spend time exercising the gifts of the Spirit, and there needs to be order. It says in 1 Chronicles, or 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 14. How is it then, brethren, when you come together, every one of you has a psalm or a doctrine or a tongue or a revelation or an interpretation? Let all things be done unto edifying. If any man speaks an unknown tongue, let it be by two or at the most three, and at that course, and let one interpret. But if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. So here's what will happen. You go into some churches. I've visited churches with friends. Literally, at one, they had a little triangle, and they went ding, 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 ding. And everybody just started ripping in tongues. 2,000 people. One about Honda, one about Honda, one about Honda, right? And they're just all doing this, right? And I'm sitting there going, this isn't the Lord. And people get upset, but I'm doing it. Well, what does the Bible say? Did we just read it? It says if somebody had, first of all, there's two different kinds of tongues. There's a prayer language where you're in your own, you know, at home and it's between you and the Lord. And we know that tongues will always edify God. And some will sometimes stand up and, and interpret it and say, that guy said that, that uh, this is going to happen in our city and we need to do that. No, that's not, tongues never do that because tongues edify God. They don't direct men. Amen. But see, only you'll know that if you read the Bible. And if you don't read the Bible, you're going to get caught up in places where they're barking in the spirit and they have drunk tanks at church because you're so drunk in the spirit, you can't drive home and you have to sleep it off in the drunk. Where is that in the Bible? But this happens because people, there's confusion. A church in Santa Cruz, a guy came up to me, a church had really grown, God was blessed in it. He goes, pastor, I don't think we should have pastors. I think what we should do every Sunday is everybody just comes and we'll say, who has a word? And then someone can get up and share it. I'm like, No. Because it's not in the Bible. Amen? 
Some are called to be pastors. A pastor just means servant. Pastor's no better than anybody else. He's the biggest servant in the building and should be. Amen? But we don't want anybody opening up the Bible and teaching it who hasn't studied it, who hasn't spent time preparing in it. Amen? We shouldn't teach three five-year-olds if we're not prepared. Amen? But the Holy Spirit's not the author of confusion. There's a limit to the number of prophets. It says there needs to be judgment. If anything be revealed... Another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace. For you may all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be comforted. When you're in a group that allows folks to speak, you make your point, let others have a chance to speak as well. And, and again, what it's telling us is that when God speaks, he's not going to contradict himself. He's not going to speak over himself. That people get up in the middle of a service while I'm teaching, or I've been at churches where the pastor's teaching, Pastor Tom McClure, 3,500 people, 30,000 people, whatever it was in the sanctuary, and a guy gets up and starts just yelling. Now, do we even need to look and hear if that's from the Lord or not? We already know it's not. You know how we know? The Holy Spirit doesn't interrupt himself. Amen? I'm not saying that that person doesn't have something to say. I'm not saying there's another place for that to be said, but we want to do everything decently and in order. Some people claim they lose control under the Holy Spirit. Oh, I, I was under the Spirit. I lost control. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is self-control. Amen? So if you, oh, I'm so filled with the Spirit. I just got out of control, and I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, no, not in the body. See, our God is a God of order. And there's two extremes. You got some people that are so afraid of God doing anything spiritual that, that you walk into a morgue on Sunday where it's just spiritually dead. So look, we want to have joy. We want to serve God. We want to see the gifts being used for the kingdom of God and for his glory, but we don't want anything done out of order. It says in, that for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. God's doesn't do the confusion thing. The Bible says, let everything, this is 1 Chronicles 14, 40, let everything be done decently and in order. So we see this order being put into place here. This is what we're doing. These are the people that are going to do what they're called to do. We're now going to order, they're going to or, put in order this crowd that's going to lead the ark and be singing praise songs along the way. And watch how he's going to use people's gifting. But before that, He's going to finalize how the ark is to be moved. Look at verse 14. So the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves, so they cleansed themselves. So it was a ceremonial cleansing to be cleansed, but it's a picture of the fact that they should be cleansed by the Lord, right? That they should have uh, the hand of God upon them. And then it says, after they sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord of Israel, the children, verse 15, of the Levites bore the ark of God on what? By the what? by its poles, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. So Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, or the law, and so Penta just meaning five, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So those, they opened it up, they saw the commands of the Lord, and, and Moses was the man that God used to speak to his people. Do you remember when God spoke from the, from the Mount Sinai, and what did everybody do? They flipped. They're like, dude, you go talk to him. They heard God's voice on the mountain. They're like, dude, it was shaking. And like, you go talk to him. Problem was, by the time he came back after 40 days, they were having a drunken orgy. Worshiping a golden calf. Aaron, his brother, was leading the way. And when he came down, he goes, Aaron, 
What happened? Well, we just throw all this gold in there and this calf popped out. It's like believing in evolution. Nonsense, amen? So the priests were to be sanctified, to set themselves apart unto the Lord. And they knew that the word of God said, carry it on your shoulders. Again, a picture of the fact that we've been called by God to be the ones that deliver the word of God and the spirit of God to the, pe- to the people in the world. Again, it's not us that saves people, but we're the conduit. We're the tool that God chooses to use. Could he open up heaven and just talk to everybody? What's the answer? I was witnessing to a guy, again, another customer the other day. Why doesn't God just open up the sky and just tell everybody? Then everybody gets saved. I go, no, they wouldn't. Mount Sinai. This guy happened to be Jewish. I go, Mount Sinai, you heard about that? What did they all do? Had an orgy. They all got drunk. They made a golden calf after God spoke out loud. So guess what God does? He gives us his word and he uses us because we have the spirit of the living God living inside of us. Amen? What a privilege that is. And we should take that, not take that for granted. It says in Numbers chapter 7, And Moses took the wagons and the oxen and gave them unto the Levites, two wagons and four oxen he gave unto the sons of Gershon according to their service, and four wagons and eight oxen he gave to the sons of Merari according to their service, under the hand of Ithamar the son of Aaron the priest. But unto the sons of Kohath he gave none, because the service of the sanctuary belonged unto them, they should bear this upon their shoulders. So there it is. It's in the Bible. It's written down. Moses wrote it down. Now they're going to obey God. Isn't it, isn't it a blessing when you know you're walking in obedience to the Lord? Isn't it a joy and a blessing? That, you know, Lord, I'm, I, I know I'm where I'm called to be doing what you've called me to do. What a joy and what a blessing that is. God's presence carried into the world on the shoulders of men and women. And when you go to work tomorrow, the Holy Spirit will just have entered the building. We want to invite our Heavenly Father here to welcome Him. And without Him, this is a waste of time. You know, I, wanna, I want our fellowship to be in such a way that, that the Lord, does the Lord feel welcome here? There's some churches where He wouldn't. Amen? There's some churches where they're, they're so woke or so caught up and chasing. By the way, it's, it's amazing we have Gay Pride Month and we have one day to remember when Jesus was born. Amen? And everybody bows to it. Every store, every, everything that's on You know what? And guess what? Let me tell you right now. We need to pray for them and we need to love them because that's just another sin and all sin is wrong. But we are not to bow to that to somehow say that it's okay because it's not. Amen? I saw a, pic, a guy sent me a thing today and I loved it. He, and he said, this is the month of June now. And you see everybody bowing to the, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's golden idol with a rainbow flag around it. And then three Christians are standing there by themselves, standing up. Now, again, we love, we love people, amen? We're sinners saved by grace. We're one beggar leading another beggar to the bread. But we don't ever want, we don't want to condone my sin either or your sin either, amen? But it's amazing how there's this pressure that if you're a Christian church, you need to be loving and affirming. No, we need to love you enough to tell you that you're a sinner just like me and you need to get saved, amen? We don't want to affirm sinful behavior, Now watch what David does. Point number three here. There's joy in the house of the Lord. I love this. Verse 16. 
So Moses commanded their being, then David spoke to the leaders of the Levites to appoint their brethren to be singers, accompanied by instruments of music. Uh, church of Christ, you might want to read that verse. They believe in no instruments in the church. It's painful. Singers accompanied by musical instruments, stringed instruments, harps, and cymbals. Oh, that, oh, drums. By raising the voice with resounding, what? Joy. She says, call out the singers. That means get people who can sing to lead. Amen? Bring them up. Have them lead us into the presence of the Lord. And let's get the music. Now, I want to say this. The most important thing about the worship portion of it is the words in the song. Amen? It's the lyrics. Having poor lyrics is just as bad as preaching an unbiblical message. Amen? So the, the music accompanies the words, but the words are more important than the music. Amen? So we want to know... And that's why I love songs to have the name Jesus in it a whole bunch of times. Pastor Don McClure in San Jose said, would say in all the staff meetings, he's like, I don't care what the first four songs are, you know, honor the Lord. He said, the last song, I want to hear Jesus, 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 and then Jesus, Jesus. So that when we get up to open our Bible, we've been focusing on Jesus. And I love that, Amen. We want to honor the Lord. We want, to, we want to cry out his name. We want to give him all the praise and all the glory and all the honor. It's all, and there should be joy. It says it right there. There should be joy in the house of the Lord. This is not worship. Praise the Lord. That's not worship. That's not worship. It's tragedy is what it is. To the musicians, I think, again, you know, they were to... We need to be careful to pick joyful songs. We need to keep ourselves. And again, there's, it's good to have reverence too, of course. But, I, but you know, sometimes I've been to churches, by the time they're done with worship, I want to jump off a cliff. It's just so, oh my, you know, Lord help, amen? We're not going to do that in heaven. We're not going to have black robes on with the wheelbarrow full of rules, smacking ourselves with a board every five feet with heaven at the end. And a lot of people that think that's what Christianity is. Oh, I gotta, you know, I gotta wound myself for you. I've gotta, oh, that was the prophets of Baal, not the followers of Jesus Christ. Amen. It says in Psalm 16, thou shalt show the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand, pleasures forevermore. If we find ourselves truly in God's presence, we will be surrounded with joy. I'm telling you, when we get to heaven, we're gonna be doing that. We're going to be jumping up and down, amen? Can you imagine being in that crowd and here comes the presence of the Lord and we are going to be shouting at the top of our lungs, amen? God be glorified. By raising the voice with resounding joy, the several musical instruments mentioned were important, but none more important than these joyful voices. The greatest instrument in any church is the voices of the people, Amen? That's, that's, that's the instrument that the Lord loves to hear the most. The other instruments are wonderful, but the instrument he loves the most is your voice. And by the way, in the Lord's ears, no matter how bad you think you sing, it's a joyful sound to him. Amen? I'm looking forward to hearing that roar in heaven. Now notice he's going to give a list of names here. 
says, appoint the brethren to be singers accompanied by instruments with resounding joy. So the Levites appointed Haman, the son of Joel, and his brethren, Asaph. Ever heard of him? Asaph. Who's Asaph? He is a worship leader who wrote 12 of the Psalms. Uh, He wrote Psalm 50, 73, 74, 75, 76, 77, 78, 79, 80, 81, 82, and 83. And by the way, if you didn't know it, Psalms is a hymn book. Amen? It's, it's songs that they sang. Asaph became one of the head musicians, and he was used mightily by the Lord. The, the ministry of music fell to Asaph and his descendants. It says in Chronicles 25, we get there, moreover, David and his captains of the host separated to the service of the sons of Asaph. So it was going to be his descendants that were going to be the chief worship leaders in Jerusalem. They had a calling upon their life to lead people into worship. And that's a wonderful, wonderful gift. By the way, don't you love the diversity of our worship team? Amen? We've got we got people in high school and people who, who forgot where their high school was, right? <laughs> You're right. I mean, we've got, and I love that. And I think that's amazing, don't you? I just love it. It blesses my soul. And it says there in verse 17, so the Levites point him in verse 18, with those brethren, the second rank, Zechariah, ben Eliel, or Ben-Jazil, Shemamoth, Jehuel, Uniath, Eleph, this is where your pastor gets humbled. Mechaniah, Obed, Edom, Jehul, the gatekeepers. Now, in the midst of all this, there's those that are leading people into worship, but there's also gatekeepers. And we're going to see them mentioned several times in here where their job is just to make sure that, uh, again, the people that approach the ark, the people that come into worship, they're the ones that are there that make a stand for the Lord. Again, gatekeeper or porter, someone that, again, as it's being moved along the way, they're keeping people from coming near it. Again, they're protective of the things of God. Verse 19, the singers Hernan and Asaph and Ethan were to sound the cymbals of bronze. See, those bronze cymbals on those drum sets been around for thousands of years. Amen? Zechariah, Azael, Shemaramoth. Jezeel, Umni, Eliab, Messiah, and Benaniah, who string, who, who, with strings according to Amos. So there were stringed instruments, and there were cymbals. There's going to be harps. Matthiah, verse 21, Milkaniah, Obed-Edom, Joel, Azariah, to direct the harps. Boy, the harp's kind of a dying, but you know what? Isn't a guitar kind of a smaller harp in some ways, right? It's, it's strings that brings forth worship, right? It's beautiful. I love it. Verse 22, Chenaniah, leader of the Levites, was instructor and in charge of the music because he was skillful. Guess what? It's okay to be gifted by God and to use those gifts. Amen? Because... While we all would like to lead worship, some of us are not skillful at leading worship. Amen? Some of us are painful at leading worship. So we don't want that. And again, I'm not saying that the person who leads worship is better than the person who doesn't, or the person who's skillful at worship is better than the person who isn't. It's just that that's their calling. They're being faithful to that. You have a calling that they don't have. You need to be faithful to yours. Amen? And so it's okay. 
And some people struggle with that. Well, I like to, I want to be in front of the whole church and lead in worship. Well, are you skillful? Are you gifted? Are you called? It's not being mean. It's, it's honoring the Lord. Amen? Skill is important to music. There's a place in the music ministry for skill. He taught people how to sing. He didn't just do all the singing by himself. We're going to see this about this guy. He taught people how to sing, how to sing right, how to sing in tune. He, he, he you know, assembled them together, you know, brought the right songs. I mean, that's what a worship leader does. Amen? And again, we're to give God our very best. And he taught people how to do those things. And, and again, we're to give God our very best in all that we do. And again, you may not be the best at what you're called to do, but you can be the best you can be with the gift that God has called you to. I had a friend, um, i got to finish here. I had a friend in college that was the most gifted human being I've ever seen in football, but his life was a disaster. He could have literally been the greatest running back in the history of the NFL. There's not a doubt in my mind. And he would just not show up to practice. He kept getting kicked off teams. He was playing at a team, and uh, we were playing a game against a, a, a much bigger team. And at halftime, they were mocking us. And in the second half, he rushed for almost 300 yards by himself. Guy was amazing. He got kicked off that team. Somebody drafted him in the NFL in the seventh round anyway, and he made it to the Pro Bowl as a rookie. And that team had drafted a guy with the third pick in the draft, and he beat that guy out. Here's the point. He's super gifted, and he had no discipline. And I want to say this. With your gifting needs to be some discipline. Amen? We need to be faithful. Let me finish. Then it says there, so... Um, verse 23, Bechariah and Elkanah were doorkeepers for the ark. So these were guys who were watching over and making sure that people didn't approach it. Shephaniah, Josephat, Nathaniel, Amasiah, Zechariah, Benaniah, Eliezer, the priests were to blow the trumpets. They got trumpets before the ark of God and Obed-Edom and Jehiah, doorkeepers of the ark. Point number five there, when God calls you, he equips you. So David and the elders of Israel and the captains over thousands went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord God from the house of Obed-Edom with joy. They were told to bring it with joy. They were told to carry it on poles. They're doing what God said. They're doing it with the heart that God commanded. Verse 26, and so it was when God helped the, the Levites. So God helps the people that are called. The Levites were called to do it. God helped them do it. If God calls you to do something, he will equip you to do it, and he will help you to do it well. Amen? We get comments all the time, had some more this week, from people who are just blessed by how they're greeted here. That means somebody who's gifted in greeting people is greeting people well. Amen? And that's a high calling, and that's a wonderful thing. It says there, God helped the Levites who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and they offered seven bulls and seven rams. Here's showing that they understand what they're doing. They're making sacrifices to the Lord along the way. Seven, the number of completeness. They're taking a certain amount of distance and are stopping and making sacrifices unto God. Verse number 27, David was clothed with the robe of fine linen, as were all the Levites who bore the ark, the singers, Chenaniah, the music master with the singers, David also wore a linen ephod. Now, we're going to see in a moment that people have said that David danced before the Lord naked. That's not the case. What he actually does is he's not dressed up like a king. He's dressed in modesty. So he's wearing an ephod. He's dressed like the priest with just plain linen. Look at the last two verses. Thus all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting, with the sound of the horn, with trumpets, with cymbals, making music, with stringed instruments and harps. Amen, amen, and amen. 
and the rejoicing. The ark's coming back. The presence of the Lord is going to be in our midst. We, are so, we can't help but cry out to God. When God calls you, he equips you. Finally, we worship to an audience of one. Here's another reason why you don't want a whole bunch of wives. And it happened as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came to the city of David that Michael, Saul's daughter, that's already a problem, Saul's daughter looked through a window and saw David whirling and playing music, and she despised him in her heart. He was worshiping the Lord from the depths of his heart, and his wife saw it, and she despised him. We know in other chapters, she makes fun of him. It says, what a horrible representation of a king you are. Uh, you might want to look at your dad and see what a horrible representation of a king was with Saul. Amen? Saul should have been doing a little more dancing and worshiping before the Lord and a little less disobeying God. Amen? And so here's what will happen. When you worship the Lord and when you have a passion for the things of God, you're going to have some people that are going to mock you. They're going to have some people that think you're crazy. Guess what? The only person we worship is the Lord. Amen? And we're singing to an audience of one, and we're magnifying his name and his name alone. Guys, let's not be ashamed of our Savior ever. Amen? Let me close with this. In Christian life, emotions must not be manipulated, but they must not be repressed. Let me say that. I talked about it briefly, but let me close with this. Some places, you'll see that emotion is all that matters, and the emotion is not being done in order. Amen? And then you have the other extreme, where emotion of any kind is frowned upon. Somebody who's very close to me went through a very difficult divorce. And he was going to a church that very toned down. And when, the, when he called his pastor to say, my wife left a note and she left me after 20 years. She just left me. His response was, well, obviously she's not redeemed. She's not called. It's not from the Lord, blah, blah, blah. No, no. Then, my, then his father died. And he was doing a Bible study at his house. And this pastor happened to be there. And he started weeping about his father dying. And the pastor put his arm around him and said, crying is weakness. We don't do that. You know why? Because, and these are the same people. If you go to their church and hug them, they're going to have you arrested probably. Because I'd go visit this church with him and I'd go to hug the pastor. And he's like, I'm, we, we don't do that. I'm like, wow, you're going to be uncomfortable in heaven. Because we're going to be hugging in heaven. Can I get an Amen. And get in line behind me to hug Jesus. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Amen. I can't wait to hug our Savior. Amen. Can you imagine getting to heaven and being home? Blah, blah, blah. I can't even imagine. And so look, there should be emotion, but it's done decently in an order. You're not rolling in the floor. You're not barking in the spirit. You're not getting spiritually drunk. You're not acting like a crazy person. But we also don't want the other extreme where everybody walks around so somber. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy. Amen? Jesus, others, yourself, and then you'll have joy. So in closing, the blessings of divine discipline. Thanks for letting me go over a few minutes. Le learning to make the Lord the priority above all else. Faithfully using the gifts God's given us. Holiness for me, grace for everyone else. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There should be joy in your life. When God calls you, he equips you, and we worship to an audience of one. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We love you. We thank you for your word. Help us, Lord, to be sanctified, to continue to grow in our relationship with you. 
Help us, Lord, to love you above everything else, to make you the priority and the passion of our lives. And help us, Lord, to use the gifts you've given us for your kingdom and for your glory. And Lord, I pray that there will be joy in this house always. And I pray there will be joy in our lives always. That, Lord, we would keep our eyes and our passion and our focus on you. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said...